beaming from Pacific Junction Hotel to Earth. Great, Brian, you're connected. Okay. Hi, Brian. Hey. I know it's just a couple of days after May the 4th and Revenge of the 5th, so happy uh, Star Wars days. <laughs> right, yeah. All right, are you ready to roll? Sure, whenever you're ready. Yo, welcome to my summer layer. I'm your host, Sammy Yunan. I have today with me Brian J. Jones, whose recent Dr. Zeus biography is called Becoming Dr. Zeus, Theodore Geisel, and the Making of the American Imagination. Uh, so congratulations on the book being out. It must be a relief to kind of get that off your desk. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's great. Always, uh, I mean, this is book four, but it's exciting every time. So, Rather than ask you the obvious expected question of what's your favorite Dr. Zeus book, which I'm sure you'll be doing a lot of interviews, so that'll get a little bit boring, I'll take a little bit more of a creative route. In the afterward, you mentioned having a daughter, Madison. Is there a particular Dr. Zeus book you enjoyed reading to her, or is there one that she always kind of demanded uh, when she was a little child? You know, it's it's funny. She um she didn't learn to read off Dr. Seuss. She learned to read off of comic books. So we didn't actually have a Dr. Seuss book, and I know that's disappointing to people. Um, <laughs> so we we didn't actually we didn't actually have one that we we passed around. You know, she's she's got all oh, the places you'll go, uh, things like that. But she, um, I, I was the same way growing up. I learned how to read from also comic books and peanuts and family circus. So um, I didn't come to come to Dr. Seuss as somebody who used the book to learn to read. So my favorite ones were always like, I loved Bartholomew Cubbins, which is sort of an unconventional one because it's, you know, it's written in prose and mm-hmm. it's not, you know, it's not the easier, it's one of his very first ones. So, um, you know, everybody's relationship with him is a little bit different. And for mine, it, it, it didn't come out of, you know, been one of those things of sitting down with my kid in my lap reading, reading her a Dr. Seuss book. We, you know, we, we came to him differently than that. So, yeah, you mentioned already this is uh, your fourth book. You've, the previous ones are on other uh, pop culture architects, uh, Jim Henson and George Lucas. Why did you follow up uh, those two books with Dr. Zeus and not like another pop culture architect like Stan Lee or Walt Disney or somebody else like that? Oh, you don't think Dr. Seuss is a pop culture architect? I do think he is a pop culture architect, but why <laughs> would he be the next one to follow up with rather than like, say, Stan Lee or Walt Disney? I think Dr. Seuss is a major pop culture architect. Yeah, that, well, first of all, Disney's been done about as well as you can do it by um, oh, Neil Gabler. Neil Gabler's Disney book is one of the gold standards. It's one of my very favorite biographies and really it inspired the kind of biography that I want to write, which I actually got to tell Neil that at one point, and he was very flummoxed and embarrassed by that because he's an <laughs> awesome guy. But, yeah. um, but that's a great book. And then Stan Lee is actually being done right now as well. And so those are some of the things we have to actually consider as biographers is we have to know what's coming up and who's got their hands on it. And someone's been writing Stan Lee for quite a while too, in fact, mm-hmm. as well. But for me, it was, you know, I mean, that doesn't mean that I'm not going to be like, well, I don't care. I want to, you know, what makes a difference is it's going to be my take on it. I mean, that's not enough to scare me away that someone else is doing it. Um, but for me, I mean, I love doing these people who are like these big creative icons who are like very hands-on, are doing stuff that nobody's necessarily done before, which, I mean, again, Walt Disney's the same way too. Um, <laughs> what I've been telling people is that with Dr. Seuss, following Jim Henson and George Lucas, is I get to own everyone's childhood now in its entirety at this point. Um, <laughs> You're but Disney. What I, but I, I always love, I mean, what I, what I love about these, these figures is they're all big names who you know. I mean, my first book is Washington Irving, who's another really sort of creator of American pop culture. Mm-hmm. But he's one of, I'd say, Washington Irving, people think I'm talking about a basketball player. Whereas with <laughs> these guys, I never usually have to explain who they are or what they do. And so that already takes 
part of the part of the justification or part of the discussion out of the way, I can start concentrating on you know let's talk about how they did what they did because you know who you know who Dr. Seuss is, mm-hmm. but now let's talk about who he really was and let's talk about work you know like the Cat in the Hat and the Lorax and you know Green Acres and let's and let's look at what's behind that work. That that to me is the most fascinating part of it, and that's why I try to pick subjects that. Uh, I can really get into the creative process and how they do what they do and what inspires them and what frustrates them and how long did it take them to do that. So that makes them a sort of a, a wheelhouse subject for me. Yeah, and part of getting to know uh, Dr. Zeus, like the subtitle of the book is The Making of an American Imagination. So how does Dr. Zeus's imagination compare to Jim Henson and George Lucas, who also had like this broad vision and created a lot of unique, iconic characters? Well, the, the the thing they all sort of have in common is they all have their eye their eye on the ball. I mean, they all know how they think a project should look, should sound, should feel, should taste, and they're going to do whatever it takes to get to that. And you know, with Lucas, it was well, you know, I'm going to make this movie, and if you don't have special effects and a special effects shop, fine, screw you, I'll build my own. Mm-hmm. And you know, and Jim Henson, and Jim Henson's the guy who's like, I want to put puppets on TV. They've never been on TV. Fine, let me show you the way a puppet should look on TV. Um, what Dr. Seuss is doing is saying, you know, kids' books kind of suck, and uh, I think kids' books shouldn't suck, and they should be fun to read. Let me show you how that looks. Let me show you what that sounds like. You know, the, the, probably his biggest contribution is he's the one that kicked open the door for kids' books that were, you know, fun to read, that kids wanted to read, and actually had a pedagogy behind them. I mean, a lot of his early books, what sets a book apart, like Cat in the Hat and a lot of those books moving forward from the earlier part of his career, and this is one of the things I found so fascinating about him, is there's there's pedagogy behind that. I mean, he's got approved reading lists. There's approved word lists that he has to work with. You know, for, so, so a book like Cat in the Hat's got an approved word list of about 300 words, and he ends up using around 225 of them. When you start getting to even more simpler books like Green Eggs and Ham and Fox and Socks, the list is even smaller. And so he's working within the confines of those lists, but doing something really wonderful with them that people hadn't done before. Before that, you had Dick and Jane, who I say in the book, you know, were leading their lives of quiet desperation <laughs> because it was, you know, look, Dick, look, look at the ball. The ball is red, 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 you know, trying to work in the repetition and the short words. Dr. Seuss said, those books are terrible. You know, why would you do that to a kid? Give them a book they want to read. And so that's what he does with Cat in the Hat and Fox and Fox and Green Eggs and Ham. And a lot of those books moving forward, they've got that pedagogy behind them. But, oh, my God, reading was finally fun. And to him, that was probably he, – he considered that his greatest accomplishment was that he had made reading fun for generations of kids. And following up on what you're saying about uh, the word list that he used and Dr. Zeus's greatest accomplishment, one of his actual accomplishments was he gave people like you and I the word nerd. right. Can you just share yeah. the brief origin of that story? Because that's a great sure. word. Yeah, it's actually in the one of the books that I came to really fall in love with. But, you know, before all this, before I got into writing his book, I could have I could have probably named you know I could have written down the names of maybe ten of his books. But if I ran the zoo, would not have been one of them. And that was one that, as I was doing my research and going through and reading his entire list of books, uh, I really love that book. I think it's one of his best. Um, I think it's one of his most fun. I think it's written in a, in a really lively, fun style that. It's, it's kind of a peak of his rhyme and rhythm um, because it's before he's, he's hamstrung himself by the word list. So he's, he's kind of letting it all hang out. And the art is just fantastic and it's fun and the sense of colors in it. But there's one section in there where 
it, it's set up like a lot of his books at the time. It's even sort of set up like Mulberry Street, where it's like, hey, if I ran the zoo, what would I do? What would my animals be? And they start getting more and more and more fantastic as the book goes on. And one of the creatures in his zoo, the narrator says, would be something called a nerd, mm-hmm. which just looks like a bird. It's like a like an angry looking bird more than anything else. It's not really what we come to think of as nerd, but it's the first time that that was ever in print. Uh, and very shortly thereafter, Newsweek was already talking about it, and it had already been sort of adapted by you know somewhat the, the term we think of now, but that word then started to evolve and became the word it is today. And then as when I was growing up, nerd would still get your head in the toilet. Nowadays, to be <laughs> nerd is cool. So Yeah, and rich, of course, too. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But yeah, that word didn't exist till Dr. Seuss thought of it. And that's one of the things I think is so cool about him is he's got this real knack for coming up with words that didn't exist, but sound like they always kind of did. I mean, a word like Grinch is not it's it's a very organic sounding word. Um, he loved, even as a young man, in a lot of his work he was doing in his college magazine stuff, he would always come up with these interesting, weird-sounding names. And he got really good at it later. Some of his earlier names tend to have an awful lot of consonants and not enough vowels in them. But, um, but he, he loved making up names even very early in his career. You're touching upon his evolution, and uh, I want to talk about his personal evolution because on page 93, you highlight a fascinating tension about Dr. Zeus. Uh, you write, and yet the fact that as a young man, Ted that's his real name, perpetuated negative racial stereotypes that cannot be denied. He would evolve, but it would take time. So, and you have a number of examples in the book. Granted, some of this was established norms at the time. He's talking about like Chinaman, Japanese people, uh, black people using the N-word, obviously. So do the Dr. Zeus books viewed through a different lens if he hadn't evolved and if he hadn't grown and become a better person, I guess, for lack of a better term? Yeah, you know, and that's a great point. And that was, you know, I I knew that was out there when I when I took this on. And in his lifetime, he even had to deal with this. You know, he's he's you got one interview he does in 1976, and he says, uh, you know, you you have to look at these things in perspective of, of 50 years ago. They may have been funny then, but today I sort of wonder. So, you know, it was an issue he was even he was even thinking about and ruminating even in his lifetime. Um, so I, I think it's one of the reasons we're all willing to go back and explore those situations along with him it was something he was aware of so the book is entitled becoming dr zeus which is what you're kind of following up on right what you're talking about now would creative people stuck in a dead-end job find inspiration in his unusual career path because he didn't have a linear <laughs> like once no, he, gra- he definitely did not once he graduated from dartmouth it was all kind of like uh, like the family circus cartoon where he's just kind of like going all over the place trying to get to a, <laughs> trying to get to a nice destination reference. There very you go. nice reference well yeah. done oh thank you i had um, my moments yeah so <laughs> Would you think then creative people as well, then who are stuck in a dead end job, find inspiration in his unusual career path? Yeah, I, I think I think they would, and I think that's one of the one of the through lines for all the subjects I've done as well. Is they're all sort of a study in stick to <laughs> That's a good reference too. I, I wouldn't say Dr. Seuss was necessarily ever stuck in a dead end job, but you know he was he had a very successful career in advertising. But once he started doing kids books, it was one of those things he really wanted to do for a living. You know, he enjoyed it. He sort of eventually he felt the calling. When he first got into it, it was because there was money on the table essentially. Uh, but I think you know the more he the more he did it, the more he appreciated it, the more he considered it. There's a there's a moment in the book where he um, in 1949 he teaches a writing class all about it in, at University of Utah, and I think that's a, a big moment. We can talk about that a little bit later. But, um, you know, that's the moment I think he realizes this is a good profession. He wants to do it for a living. 
but his books don't sell enough. And I know we find that really hard to believe now, but you know, books like Horton Hatches the Egg were kind of a breakout hit, but didn't earn him enough that he could do it for a living. So he was still doing advertising and still, you know, still writing kids' books, trying to get the one that was going to land and have the kind of you know, sales behind it so he could become a full-time writer. That doesn't happen to him until The Cat in the Hat comes along, and he's 53 years old when that book hits. So, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, maybe you find it very inspiring that it took him a long time. He didn't hit it big till he was in his 50s. Now, he was doing financially okay because he was great at advertising, but it wasn't what he wanted to be doing full time. So I, so I hope people will, will take some, uh, some inspiration and some solace in the fact that even Dr. Seuss doesn't really become Dr. Seuss until he's in his 50s. Yeah, that's why the title of the book is Becoming Dr. Seuss, right? Like, Absolutely. It's, uh, it's like he's steeping like tea, basically. I want to uh, bring it back to you personally. Like one of the things you do throughout the book is, and I found this very curious, was that you you have a lot of quotes from like uh, reviews of his books, and I didn't realize that people at the time were reviewing his books, his children's books, basically. Uh, just seeing how the criticism of his books and how well his work has landed and how it has had a huge impact has that shaped your perspective on the criticisms that you get for the books that you put out and how your work has evolved over the years. Um, you know, he he never really got a bad review, so so <laughs> so it's hard to take the lessons that the rest of us get when we get bad reviews to him because he never really got a bad review. Um, you know, probably the better model in my work is Washington Irving, who would get bad reviews and then claim he'd never read them, which is what we all tend to do. <laughs> um, you know, even though we read every word, we're like, oh, I never even saw that one. But but for you know, most of his life, he got he got good, if not great, reviews. You know, every once in a while, there would be a review that didn't quite maybe understand what he was getting at and his response tended to be like oh well you know i that's i i can understand why they were a little confused by this and so you know i i guess as as my if you want to apply that to my experience it might be one of those where you know sometimes you're you go well you know it was clear they didn't read the book <laughs> or, or or you know i guess you know they didn't they didn't appreciate what i was trying to say there so you know even dr seuss at times could be like okay yeah i guess you, you didn't quite appreciate what i was trying i was trying to do something different and you didn't quite appreciate that that happened to him with uh i think oh the things you can think at one point he was yeah. trying something a little bit new and people were a little confused by that and he's like eh, you know i was trying something new i understand why they didn't get it and you also referenced that as well for the, all the places you'll go where people didn't quite get it. Like there was, I think, one critic who said, "Like, what's the point of this book?" Yeah, isn't that interesting? One of the, one of the criticisms of it was really mean. It was like this whole thing about like you know, all the places you'll go is some yuppie manifesto. Like, I mean, I I was shocked by that. Mm-hmm. And and um, you know, and I mean, the book and there were, and there were other reviewers who loved it who clearly got it, but. Oh, the place to go doesn't land with the universal adulation that we expect. I mean, it certainly got that, but there were a lot of people who were like, "Yeah, this is being intentionally pandering," and I, it, it really did kind of shock me that it wasn't completely a hundred percent embraced. It was probably ninety percent embraced, which is pretty good. But yeah, some of the criticism of that book really, really shocked me. Nerds. Over the last couple of years, um, I want to tie this into Dr. Zeus, but over the last couple of years, we've been celebrating The Little Prince, which that book turned 75, and that's been a real inspirational kind of children's young adult book. Uh, we have two mm -hmm. documentaries on that. Again, over the last couple of years, we've been celebrating kind of a Mr. Rogers resurgence. There's been a bio and a doc, and I think Tom Hanks is working on a biopic. Yeah. And now you've come out with Dr. Zeus bio. Is this a trend, some sort of like back to nostalgia or childhood, or is this just a coincidence, or how do you view this kind of current era that we're in? 
great question, great point, and I, I wish I had a, a good answer for it. it. It is weird. Sometimes things get in the zeitgeist mm-hmm. uh, on this. You know, I mean, and it's like all these projects had to have been in the works long before our current um, political situation, I guess. So, you know, it is interesting that, that a lot of us were moving toward these things even several years ago. I mean, I, I didn't start even working on this book until 2000. I don't know, 16 or 15, I guess, is when we first came up with the idea for it. So, um, but but I do think it, you know, especially something like Mr. Rogers, people are like, look at this, look at the way people treat each other with respect and with kindness, you know. And Dr. Seuss, the work is, I think, what people look at more than him as the person, which is why I'm I'm glad to be able to have a book that talks about him as a person. But, you know, I, I think the work is one of those things where people are like, look at, you know, look at what people are doing to, you know, educate people and make people happy. Um, I, I, think, I think we are grabbing at anything right now that makes us feel that way in the safety of nostalgia and the safety of childhood. I, th- I think you're right. Mm-hmm. And can you comment on, um, uh, I didn't know how to ask you this, but I, I thought it was interesting that um, Dr. Zeus had two prominent women in his life, Helen and Audrey. Can you comment on their contributions to his work? Because again, like I, we tend to focus on the guy who made the cat in the hat. Yeah. Uh, but those two women, they they shaped his legacy. They shaped his work. I don't know how you necessarily sum up them. And that's why I was trying to figure out how to ask you about them because they tend to get overlooked with the whole Doctor Zeus mythology. Well, and one of the things I'm so happy about with this book is everybody is asking me that question about Helen in particular, and and I think Helen's contribution is so important to his story. Because she's she's the one. First of all, she was one of the, she was one of the first people. He was he was sitting in class at Oxford doing what he did, which is not studying, um, <laughs> and is you know is is doodling in his notebook instead of taking notes in his notebook. And she, this other American, he was always trying to find other Americans to cling to when he was other. He was not really that happy at Oxford, and um, and she's sitting at home in class. She's six years older than he is, and she says, um, you know, you're that that's a great drawing. Why do you want to become a, a, a college professor? This is what you should be doing. I mean, she's the one that really sort of lights that fire in him. It's like, you know, you're good at this. You have talent. This is what you should do for a living. Somebody who can draw the way you do. Somebody who's funny like you should do this for a living. And he ends up going back to New York. He marries, he marries Helen. And uh, did I, I hope I didn't say Audrey earlier. Anyway, he marries Helen, and he has a very successful career as a cartoonist and as an advertising man. But once he starts doing children's books, Helen is is his first editor, his first reader, his best editor, his best reader. He trusts her opinion implicitly. If she says something doesn't work, he might grumble about it, but he knows she's right. Uh, he always said she had a great sense of character. She could tell him if characters were not acting consistent, that she had a great sense of plot. Uh, she didn't always know how to how to resolve a plot, but she knew if he had plot problems. And that she was the one there's, – there's a moment in the book when he's working on the Grinch, and he comes out, and he's you know, holding these pages out very proudly. And she starts looking through them and says, no, no, this isn't right. You've got, you've got Papa Who too big. Or, and he, or too, you know, and she says, well and – and he says something like, well, they're bugs. And she says, no, they're not bugs. They're people. Yeah. And, you know, he, he probably I'm sure he got very upset with that. You know, my wife reads my stuff first and she's always right in her opinion. She reads it. And she's like she knows if I've blown something and I might grumble, but she's always right. And he's that way with Helen. If she says something, he knows she's right and he'll go back and he'll do it again until it's right. 
uh, her opinion was so important to him that when he finally starts beginner books with uh, Phyllis Cerf, who's the, the wife of his publisher, not somebody you want to you know mess around with too much, but he brings he brings in Helen. So um, first of all, if it ever came down to needing to vote on anything, he knew he would have Helen in his corner so he could outvote Phyllis two to one. But also, he knows that she's great at this. I mean, she was a really good writer of children's books in her own right. She wrote books during World War II that paid some of their bills. There was a Donald Duck book that she did. So, you know, he brings her in because not only does he, again, want to be able to outvote Phyllis, but he knows she's good. He knows that she can make sure books are done the way <laughs> the way he thinks they should be done, but how she thinks they should be done too. She was she was really smart, uh, really savvy, and her role in his in his work and in his life can't be understated. Um, let's transition then to Audrey. Audrey, who came after Helen uh, committed suicide, likely, probably because. She, Helen, Helen had a lot of health issues um, late in life, but also the likelihood is that Ted was having an affair with Audrey, and she heard about it um, and may have taken her own life because of that. So um, it, it's a little up in the air, and the book, we, I try to talk about this in a, uh, in a, in a thoughtful way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm hoping people will, will see what they think. Um, but Audrey is a different kind of collaborator because she's not, she doesn't write kids' books. You know, she's, she's interested in doing other things. But Audrey has a really good color sense. She gets him to change that palette a little bit. He, he goes from some of the really bright colors that he used to use. If you go to a book like the Lorax, you'll see the colors are a little softer and a little more pastel, and that's Audrey's influence. But, the, but, but where Audrey's influence becomes really important actually is after he dies. Uh, because Audrey's the one who's now in charge of, of the playlist. You know, I mean, she's in charge of the Seuss legacy, and she's the one who keeps his name out there. I think his books would have continued to always sold, but Audrey's the one who says, you know what, let's, let's make Dr. Seuss movies, and let's let people do Seussical, the Dr. Seuss musical. We'll license that out so they can do those in high school, and we can do you know, a, a Grinch musical, and we can do Grinch movies with Jim Carrey, and we can do, Grinch, we can do Cat in the Hat movies with Mike Myers, which even she thought was terrible but she let it be made. You know, she was the one that really kept the, the name out there. So she deserves a lot of credit there for sort of the business acumen she had after he died to keep that name out there. So I'll get you out on this. There's, uh, I found it fascinating, too, reading the biography. I didn't know anything about Dr. Zeus before I read this. So this was all like, I didn't know anything about Helen. I didn't know anything about what was going on. So it was all like, uh, like a movie. There's a fantastic Forrest Gump aspect <laughs> to Dr. Yeah, Zeus. Yeah, there really is. Uh, based on all the different people that he meets, Frank Capra, Jonas Silk, he goes out drinking with Jonas Silk, Chuck Jones, uh, Truman Capote. It's almost like all the places you'll go. I know it was like an encoder of his work, <laughs> but it was like all the places you go was almost like a reference to his life and his career. And just because he was managed to connect with all these different people or work with them in different ways. Yeah, that's that's a really astute, smart point. Um, I don't think that I can approve on that, but I, you know, it. What that's one of the really fun things about biography, and is is you know, the, it's when we're writing that we actually do view everybody almost as a character, as people who write fiction would. And when you get to certain chapters, you're like, oh, great, I get to write Chuck Jones in this chapter. This is going to be fun. Mm -hmm. Or you know, I, oh, 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 here's here's Jonas Salk. They're going to go drink beer together. I get to write that. And so it's really fun as a as a researcher and as a biographer to to actually get your hands on those characters, if you will, if only for a moment. So uh, I'm glad you thought they were fun when they showed up too, because uh, sometimes you'll try to try to do a reveal that's kind of fun and you know a little sneaky, and you know you don't you don't trickle out the name until you you've brought the 
character out on stage and you're going to have them move around. And then finally you'll tell everybody who, what the person's name is. You know, those are all things we try to do to keep things interesting to you. So you're like, oh, that's who that is. But but he is fun in that, you know, you do, you get LBJ in there at one point and then he and, you know, he's trying to, you know, he's, he's griping about Richard Nixon. So you do see a lot of a lot of people are moving in and out of the story quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Charles Lindbergh, he was another enemy, I guess, uh, just kind of going after him for a little bit, too. Yeah, you know, the, the, that whole part of his career to me is, is so interesting because, you know, it, it's the part that, that people don't know about. And then when they do know about it, it's, you know, we, we, we get only a, a few cartoons. If you look through the three years' worth of his cartoons, his, his cartoons for World War II are just, they're fascinating. He had, as you were saying, he had Charles Lindbergh's number early. He didn't like the way Lindbergh talked. He thought Lindbergh was anti-Semitic. Um, he didn't like the America First mentality. He didn't like the American isolationism policy that he was pushing. Like he really went after Lindbergh. Uh, then once Lindbergh goes down, he turns his fire on Hitler. And a lot of this is even before we've entered the war. He had traveled he, as a, as a German, you know, a German American. He had he had actually traveled through Germany several years earlier and had seen Nazi propaganda over there, and really was concerned about the way propaganda impacted, you know, German children and what it was doing to the German people, and uh, really really made him nervous. And and even even. Uh, even Mussolini, he just thought was was a complete thug, which kind of shows up in the way he draws Mussolini. But uh, but you know, again, really sort of picks the right enemies early on in these things, and uh, and you can see you can see this really very progressive point of view. In fact, I see a lot of his cartoons showing up on Twitter and on Facebook today. He's got one about um, you know ch- children migrants, migrant children who you know are turned away because they're the wrong you know they're not white. Um, or they're not German or whatever. You know, that cartoon is still circulating a lot today. Uh, a lot of these cartoons are still very modern in their perspective, even 60, 70, 80 years on. Which, again, is the legacy of Dr. Zeus. Like, the work, I mean, it started, it was it 37, I think, was the first book. Until now, we continue to celebrate all of his work. Yeah, I mean, and it's, and it's a and it's a fine legacy. I mean, it's you know not as you always said, you know, I, I made reading fun. I, you know, who's gonna that that's not not too bad, mm-hmm. <laughs> not, not too bad if that's what you get to go out on. So I, I think he I think he was proud of of what he had done. You know, I, I think he was pleased when he got the Pulitzer Prize very late in life. I think he felt he wasn't always sufficiently appreciated by the grown-ups. But by that point, you had people who had grown up reading him. It was kind of the first generation was who had grown up on him were coming into his own, and I think wanted to be sure he was taken care of uh, with that sort of recognition. So I think I'm, I'm glad he got it that that sort of recognition in his lifetime because well, he would probably have never said so publicly. It was it was important to him. Um, it's it's unbelievable uh, if you tell people that he never got the Caldecott Award that they give out. Uh, he he was a finalist a couple times, but he never got he never got the big one. You know, he ended up getting getting. Uh, I can't remember which award he got. He got the. Uh, oh, the ALA. The, 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 yeah, he got the Laurie Ingalls Wilder Award, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but but he never he never got the big medal uh, from them, which is again people are shocked by that. They would have thought everything that Dr. Seuss published would have been winning medals and awards all the time. But as we've already said, he couldn't even get a bestseller until he was fifty years old. All right, thank you so much for hanging out and talking to me about Dr. Zeus. And uh, we did a chronological order, I guess, for most part. We didn't do a very whimsical uh, interview. I have to apologize, I guess. <laughs> well, but that's you know that that's okay. I always you know when people talk about biography, and they're like, well, it's chronological. Well, subjects like Dr. Seuss, um, one thing does kind of lead to another. It, it, they are things where you've got to you know you've got to find out how they relate. So mm-hmm. I think doing it that way made sense.
So yeah, the book is Becoming Dr. Zeus. It's out now, and the author is Brian J. Jones. Thank you, Brian, for hanging out. And uh, we covered actually quite a bit of his uh, we did. Work, work and uh, his career. So thank you again for the book. Do you have a follow-up subject, or is it still too early and you just got this book out? That's, that's still too early. I'm, so, I'm still, still walking Dr. Seuss around right now. So. All right. We'll look forward to the next one. Thank you, Brian. All right. Sammy, Bye. thanks for making this happen. I appreciate it. Thank you. I'm your host, Sam Yunin. You can follow me on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at MyPalSammy. Thank you for listening.